Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Randy, how's it going? Hey, Jake, I'm doing great today. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Yes, I know that you have just returned from Hawaii where you've been spending an awful lot of time. And while you were there, you had a guest jammer and they brought something with them. For sure. So, And that's why I'm doing so wonderful because I, I got to jam with uh, Mr. Bill Wright in Hawaii. He, Lori and I met at uh, Kualoa Beach Park and uh, had a really, really great jam. But we also had a really good time just connecting. So he showed up to the field and he says, hey, I got these gifts for you and I'm like you're the guest you shouldn't be bringing gifts we should be giving gifts to you but no he brought us some gifts so he pulls out these three sky stylers vintage sky stylers two of them are this marble plastic one is blue and one is yellow and it has this um, like dark blue marble color just kind of rippling through it. Clearly one of them has already been played with and that is the disc that we're going to play with now. So super excited about that. And then he says, but I also have this other disc that I want to give to you. Really, you're gonna give me this vintage disc? So he pulls it out and shows it to me. It's this beautiful blue disc. So it's a really old Sky Styler that has the, the lettering that says Discraft Sky Styler but it has no other logo, so the center is just totally clear. Bill tells me, see how it says Discraft Sky Styler Sport Disc here, and directly across from it, it also says Sport Disc. So apparently, newer Sky Stylers say something else directly across. So one side will say Sport Disc, the other side, the newer ones will say something else. So you can tell that this is one of the earliest Sky Stylers that was made because it has the words sport disc on each side and so that means this is like one of the earliest samples of a sky styler he says by the way don't feel like you need to hold on to this and collect it you should play with it if you want to play with it just play with it because i have loads of these things wow that's incredible and uh i know a little bit of the backstory of why he has loads of these things so what's interesting is that Discraft approached the fpa and said hey we have all these sky stylers and we need to move them out of the warehouse and would the fpa be interested in them yeah we'd be interested in them but you know we can't do this alone and we're talking 40 or 50 boxes of these vintage sky stylers and sky stylers from throughout the years with different tournament logos on them. I mean, it's just crazy. So we uh, were able to partner up with Bill and Daniel O'Neill as well and figure out a plan as to how to make this happen. And so got it figured out and all these boxes got shipped to Bill. And, and I don't have really any idea of what this all entails, but from what I hear, it is an amazing collection. And uh, this was Gail McCall's collection, one of the founders of Discraft. Now the FPA has it, and, and Bill is already putting up discs on the Right Life that are for sale. So if you're not an FPA member, you might want to think about becoming an FPA member because FPA members are going to get exclusive deals to some of this plastic. So I know you got to play with that old plastic. And from what I understand, the old plastic really responds differently than what we're used to today. Definitely. So I know that 
serious freestylers out there have already experienced this where one year's plastic will be a little bit different than the next year's plastic. So some of them crack more, some of them are faster than others, some of them are really soft, some of them are hard. So the disc that we played with was the yellow marble disc. It was relatively new. I think Bill had only jammed with it once before and the wind was ripping when we were playing. It was really strong, you know, just like a Sky Styler, no problem. It hangs out there and the wind sits there and floats and waits for you. But this one had this kind of a, a rubbery feeling, not like a sticky rubber, but when you hit it, it just would bounce off your hand. So it was, it was kind of soft, but it never felt too soft. It felt like I had full control over it. But probably my favorite part about this disc was it was really fast. It was one of the fastest discs that I've ever played with. I, I was finding multiple skids, multiple restricted pulls, and uh, I know that Laurie and Bill had the exact same opinion about it. So if you're looking for fast discs, those old marble discs are amazing. Wow, that's incredible. So you think it's the plastic? Yeah, I mean, I've so visually inspecting the disc, you can see that the nipple is different. So the, the way they inject the plastic has, I don't know if it's changed or what, but it's a little bit different. So it doesn't stick out. It's actually just barely indented and you can see kind of some discoloration around the center so that might make a little bit of a difference but honestly i think it's the plastic because it's it's not just the center that's faster the entire thing is faster interesting so well i can't wait to to get my hands on one so that i can give it a go um and just totally blown away by this opportunity uh, and that this collection is now going to start making its way out to the general public. Just so everyone out there knows, any purchase that you make of these discs goes to supporting the FPA. So you're not only getting yourself some amazing plastic, but you're helping the FPA help the sport. Yeah, well, this is a great opportunity for the FPA to do some fundraising for sure. Uh, I also want to mention, uh, give a little teaser about some of our upcoming guests. And uh, I know we're both super excited about these guests. So we are going to be having on Crazy John Brooks. He'll be joining us. We also will be having on Larry Imperiali, and we will be having on the one and only Skippy Jammer. I can't wait to uh, share all the stories that he's going to have with everybody out there. And there's one guest who I'm super excited about uh, who's going to be joining us because I'm a huge fan. I was a big fan of his when I was a young jammer. It's like Donnie Rhodes and this person were the people that I was really drawn to. So it's Cray Van Sickle. So Cray Van Sickle will be joining us on the podcast in the near future. So really looking forward to sharing that with all of you out there. And uh, with that, why don't we get into today's episode? Today's episode, we are going to continue our conversation with Patrick Chartrand, and we're going to get to know more about the Toronto scene past and present. So enjoy. I remember not too long ago seeing a video of these two players. This must have been in the early 80s. And I was like, who are those guys? My God, these guys are incredible. And who it was, was Brian McElwain and Kevin Sparkman. And I never had come across Kevin Sparkman. Where is Kevin Sparkman these days? And what's going on with him? I think Kevin has... Uh back problem or, or, or some type of physical ailment that prevents him from freestyling. Um, he lost interest uh, probably in the late 80s, maybe early 90s. Just wasn't something that he wanted to do anymore. It's too bad because he was a super, super smooth player. Yeah, amazing. Both him and Brian looked great together. Him and Brian had, for a number of years, a phenomenal routine. 
I mean, I think they came second at Rutgers. I mean, that's a you know pretty impressive trend to be coming second at, right? You know, totally. Well, they they played really really well together, and at the time Gary and I were playing together for a number of years, and you know we could never get past them. It was <laughs> just they were too freaking good, right? So, right. <laughs> but then in in 1985, what happened was Ryan and I were offered a contract with Labats, and we went to Labats, and then. Gary and uh, Kevin were offered another contract uh, with a, a local company called Max Melt, and they were doing a uh, nationwide um, frisbee and hockey sack tour. So they split us up because of the sponsors. So what happened was Brian split up with Kevin and came with me, and Gary went with with Kevin. They never got back together after that. That was the end of Kevin and, and Brian pretty well. It was all good because what was happening then is you know Brian and I playing together, doing this tour, we had to have a routine. So then it was like, okay, well, let's just take our routine and the routine we're doing the demos will be the same routine that we put in the tournament. Kind of made sense. And Kevin and, uh, and uh, Gary did the same thing also. And, uh, you know, much to Brian and my chagrin, in 85 when we went to the Canadian Open, we got beat by Gary and, uh, and Kevin. It was like, <laughs> got beat by your old partners, right? You know? <laughs> Uh, you know, this is just the way it goes, right? So we're all four of you, you, Brian McElwain, Kevin Sparkman, and Gary Auerbach, were you guys all kind of at the same time, or did Gary come in later? So what happened was myself, Brian, and Kevin uh, were all playing at the same time. And again, I mentioned Michael Sullivan because he was playing a bit also, and he was a good player. Um, and we were all playing uh, and hanging around Ken, and we're all doing shows. And then what happened was uh, Gary lived just down the street from me, and he was 14 years old, and he stumbled upon us. And, you know, we're, I think we're 10 years older than Gary, something like that. And um, he started hanging out, you know, this kid hanging around with these older guys. And I'm sure his parents are wondering what the hell <laughs> what's my kid doing hanging around with these old guys, right? You know, because I was a counter player and Gary was a counter player, I spent a lot of time with him, you know, just kind of showing him stuff. And well, he got really good really, really quick, and then he was showing me stuff. After a couple of years, I think um, to Gary maybe from 82 or maybe 81 to 83 or 84 to get really good. And then after that, 83, 84, Gary was a great player. We basically just competed against each other all the time and competed for Kent shows and any other shows that came around at the same time too, right? It was fun. Uh, we were competitive with each other, um, but we were also supportive with each other. Like, as you know, I mean, you know, you hang around each other and you hang around the better players or your buddies, because you're learning from them and you have something in common and you're putting in eight hours a day, they're putting in eight hours a day and it's just kind of the way it was, right? So was Ken driving the bus for all of the demos or was he like the, the boss or did you guys sort of take off at some point on your own? Um, it depended. Uh, Ken organized a lot of the demos, but then there was um, Orange Crush. Ken really wasn't involved with Orange Crush. Orange Crush was brought in through Irwin Toy and Orange, Orange Crush provided lots of the demos of which Ken did some, and we did some, and the guys out west did some. We had some other fellows, local Toronto guys, that did some also. Uh, then there were, uh, like, Ken organized a whole pile of other stuff. So it just depended, right? Yeah. It was such a fertile ground at the time. We had stuff coming at us all the time um, with opportunities. And, you know, Ken organized this thing through Dapper Dan. It was a local jean company. And um, then we had, you know, the Labatt's thing. There was the Lee, Lee Jeans. On and on and on. I mean, 
it just seemed like the timing was right. In Toronto, back then, we had a lot of press coverage. We'd be on the news all the time, in the papers all the time. So we're kind of like local celebrities, to be quite honest with you. Like, people know who the Frisbee guys were. And uh, not that we're making a fortune off it, but we're living. Yeah. You know, so it, it was all pretty cool. And so <laughs> at some point, this sort of slows down. So what happens to change the situation? I think what happened was uh, a few things happened. Well. I got married in 1987, and that didn't really slow me too much, but uh, my son was born in 90, pretty well the last tournament I went to was 91, and I was fine with that. You know, I just wanted to be with my family, my wife and my children, and no regrets on that in any way, shape, or form. Uh, at the same time, Ken lost interest in it, and he was just kind of doing his thing, and he got interested in bodybuilding. He was actually pretty jacked there at one point, like not uncontrollably jacked but i mean he had a six pack and he had some pecs you know and he was enjoying that um and then uh i don't know things just kind of dissipated somehow you know people just got doing things brian opened up a couple of restaurants um um so for a period of time basically from i guess 91 to 94 there was nothing going on uh brian and i were still playing and then once in a while gary would play with us and then somehow in 95, Gary and uh, Brian decided that they're going to go to the world. And I'm not sure how all that developed, but I do remember when they went, because before they went, I was playing with them almost every day, helping them get ready. And, you know, they went and they had a great, a great tournament, you know, and yeah, they won. They and won they, the world. They came out of nowhere because no one, no one who usually went to FPA Worlds knew who they were. I mean, they hadn't right. been to a tournament, in, like you said, in, since the early 90s, so. Yeah, and that's like I say, that not really knowing what's going on in Toronto. I mean, like Gary Auerbach was just great. I mean, it's just amazing. And then Brian, who I'd never met as well, like I was like, wow, these guys are the real deal. They had that two disc thing going on, and Gary's tremendous flexibility. And, you know, Brian, when he's in the zone, he just gets himself focused and he's just really steady. You know, it all came together for them really well. So they, they come back, and I'm like, how is it that my two partners won the goddamn world championship, and I'm left here with nothing? <laughs> I was really happy for them. I really was. I was I was beyond the moon, to be quite honest with you. It was, cool. it was, it was well-deserved, and, and it was really nice. So how, did you, how, how much involvement did you have in their preparation? Well, I was, I was getting together with them almost every day, and you know, I, was, I could throw big Zs, so I was just cranking them with Zs as much as possible, and you know, they were working on a routine and whatever, and trying to help them along their way, right? And you know, if, if Brian wasn't showing up, I was getting together with Gary and helping him go, or if Gary wasn't showing up, I was, I was helping Brian, right? You know, just trying to help them along their way, right? You know, as, as buddies do with each other, right? Yeah, that's awesome. So you were like, you were their, their playing partner. You got to keep them on shape. and. Did you give them they any pointers or anything like that? They did invite me to go down with them, which I laughed at. I thought, ah, oh, I can't do that. Right? You know? And then afterwards, it's like, darn. <laughs> that would have been fun, yeah. Yeah. Well, that was an interesting tournament in 95 because that ended up being indoors, which I think probably really benefited Brian and Gary with that two-disc setup because nobody was really doing that. And they had such high risk in regards to execution uh, choices and that being indoors was definitely a benefit for that routine, and it was awesome. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing is, is um, at that time, we played indoors, you know, six months a year because we're in Canada. You know, so basically from November until May, you're indoors. And when we played indoors, 
So that had to help them also because they were accustomed to playing indoors. I'm not sure if the rest of the world was playing indoors at that time or not, but we were certainly playing indoors all the time. So so after they come back from the World Championships, what impact did that have on the Toronto Jam scene at that point? Well, you know what? It, not, not really much because no one was jamming. Like, there was no scene. The, the, the scene was just myself, Gary, and Brian. And everybody else had dissipated at that time. It just, you know, Ken was no longer involved. I think Brian and Ken opened a bar together at that point or something like that. But uh, there were just people weren't playing. It was just the three of us. So, you know, three of us kept on playing. And then Gary moved, uh, I don't know, sometime after that. And then it was Brian and I playing together for like 20 years. And there, there was basically nobody to follow us. And we we're quite concerned about that because, you know, you, you want to you know, pass it off to the next generation. And uh, the good news is, is that uh, I guess about six years ago, uh, Brian ran into Grant somewhere and Grant knew how to delay. And next thing you know, Brian called me and said, hey, there's these guys that um, are interested in freestyle. Why don't you come out? So I started coming out with them. I had injured myself prior to that. And I hadn't played for a little while because uh, I had a um, uh, sciatica on my right side. I came back out six years ago and I was like, holy crap, man, these guys saved my life. You know, because now I'm back playing every day again, right? Mm-hmm. But it was, uh, and, and, you know, they're getting good now. Yeah, so the Renaissance started kind of happening about six years ago, and yep. you guys are now still growing. I mean, you guys seem to have a pretty good scene going on a, a pretty regular basis. Those boys play every day. So I live in the East End. I'm in the beach. And uh, a couple of guys live kind of close to me. And, but I'm down on the water every morning, so I've got my thing going on, but I don't get to play with real people, but once or twice a week. Those guys are playing in Brian's backyard every day. And Brett's the first one there and the last one to leave every day. <laughs> and you guys are the hardest working man in show business, huh? Um, but uh, no, they're, they're playing every day and they're having a great time. A vase, I don't know, Jake, did you? No, I, I don't think I you did meet a vase, yeah. A vase is off the chart. He just moves so differently than everybody else and half the times i don't even think he knows what he's doing but he does it so damn well it's really quite spectacular to see um we got brett you know growing like crazy jolin who you did play with jake is so good i mean once he actually goes through a tournament people are going to fall over when once they see how good jolin is definitely he is amazing i remember that but playing with him he's he's it was like playing the seattle mob op game but with counterspin that was the only yeah. difference is their counter players. Yeah. But man, brush and roll and guide us yeah. and passing. It was, oh, I was in heaven. What is his name? Jolin Ken Rennes. But he uh. goes online by the name of Ken Rennes. And uh, he's just a, a super good player, powerful as hell. Um, and he can leap into the air and do big, big stuff, you know? Yeah. So we got some guys that are doing their thing. Uh, Johnny, his name is Johnny, Johnny Gazelle is what we call him. He uh, does a huge consecutive game, and it's so much fun to play with him because him and I, we, we like to play one touch. You're touching the disc once, and the other guy's got to get in, right? So it kind of brings you to some, to some different places. But that guy's a lot of fun to play with because he can go, right? And then every once in a while, he takes off on his own and does 15 tips into a double spin and catch, and you go, what the hell just happened there, right? <laughs> so we got a, a pile of guys that have never been to tournaments that are just having a great time playing. Playing for the pureness of the sport. I mean, how good is that, right? That's awesome. That's great. Well, we got to get ourselves to Toronto, don't we? 
I would go as far as saying is that if you and Jake ever thought about coming, we could organize a hat tournament. I'm pretty certain we could get some of the guys from Boston and New York to come up too, right? Yeah. And, you know, make it a, a good fun time, right? Let's pick a date and we'll have a hat tournament and try to get everybody to show up in Toronto. The other thing I remember about that spot when I was there um, is just how vibrant it is. So the freestylers show up and there's already a bunch of people there who are part of the the scene. They're all part of the friendship and maybe they're not freestyling with nail delays, but they're still chatting and they're still playing catch. And some of them are still doing trick catches. Uh, And then something that really stood out in my mind was at one point, this guy rides his bike up with a giant trailer and a huge, huge sound system. And, uh, Brian taps me on the shoulder and points at it and goes, that's for us. And the guy just parks there and cranks up the music. It was freaking amazing. Yeah, that's uh, another John. His name's John. He's got a big sound system. There is a whole pile of people. And, and that's actually the great thing about that park. The park is Trinity Bellwoods Park. And it literally is the hippest park in Toronto. Like, it's a really cool place to be. Um, right in the heart of downtown, and that is Brian's backyard. You walk out of Brian's apartment, and you're right there. You cross the the, the little driveway, right? But uh, there's a whole scene going on there with people who just want to play disc. And there's a couple guys with dogs, and the dogs are unbelievable. They just track down the disc. They go get it. There's a whole pile of people that just do float, and that's all they do. Um, some other people who do these huge arcing throws around the poles and they call themselves the Frisbeterians. You know, they're, we're all part of the Frisbeterian crew being the freestylers, but the Frisbeterians is much larger than us. It's the, the whole group and the different things that they do. And it, it is, it's pretty cool. It really is. That's great. That sort of gives everybody an access point. It may not be a high level technical jammer but if you want to just throw and just enjoy the frisbee and the flight of it it sounds like everybody is there on the same page that's very cool well and and these people are good players i mean they handle the disc way better than me i mean i can do a lot of the throws and catches but boy their accuracy is unbelievable and they're moving quickly you know they're they're taking it and whipping it and it's like holy crap man you guys got something going on here and you know what's really nice is we sit there and we enjoy watching them and then they sit there and they enjoy watching us. And then we interact with each other because you get to know these people as time goes on. And then sometimes there's a little bit of cross-pollination, you know, and, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself playing a little bit of catch or one of these guys is starting to do a little delay. So that's kind of fun, too, you know? Yeah, definitely. Well, in New York, you know, they have the heavers, what they call the heavers, the folks that, you know, just toss, long toss back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, New York's a very special place there, that's for sure. Yeah, the one thing I'll say is, I, having been to both places, when I'm in New York, I feel like there's the jammer pod and there's the heaver pod. And when I was in Toronto, it felt like we were all one pod. Yeah, everybody's everybody's in it together and having a good time. And it's basically us against the baseball players. <laughs> there's always somebody to be yeah. against. <laughs> yeah. We're in the outfield of the baseball field. And, you know, sometimes they don't like the fact that we're there, but we're not giving up. We're like, no, oh, well, you know, if the ball comes, we'll move. But this is our spot. And we just kind of manage it like that. You know, and they, they try to kick us up, but we're not going anywhere. 
<laughs> that's funny. There's so many jam spots that have that battle with some. So like for us, it's the soccer players and we, we haven't had a battle in a long time, but boy, it got intense. I know like at Frazier Park in LA, they had some battle with another sport and everybody was just holding their ground. Like, We're not moving. And the thing that's really tough about freestyle or Frisbee is that they don't know that you move and that you need a certain amount of space. They just think that you could just stay in this tiny little area. They don't get it. No, it's very true. The other great thing about that spot is Jim, uh, who is a newer player, knows the guy with the Parks and Rec Department who gave him the key to the light. So we keep the baseball lights on until midnight. So these guys, you know, some of these guys don't show up till nine o'clock in the evening to play because the lights are on. Wow. Yeah, that worked out pretty good too, doesn't it? <laughs> Wait, so you, and you have people playing up until midnight? Those guys, they're playing all the time. It's unbelievable what they're doing out there, right? But it's, again, it's a combination of throw and catch and freestyle and everything else. But, no, they're playing in the lights all the time. Wow. So Frisbetarians. Yeah, it's, it's a cool thing. It doesn't sound like it's a religion, but more like a lifestyle. Uh, you know, what we do, right? You know, <laughs> you, know you think about, you know, how, how much has Frisbee influenced your lifestyle? My life would be totally different if Frisbee hadn't come into it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's life-changing. You know, anything from, you know, your mental disposition to, you know, your physical disposition because you're exercising all the time to, you know, who your friends are and where you live and a whole pile of other stuff, right? Yeah. Stork was saying something maybe at his Hall of Fame uh, induction uh, speech at uh, New York City, and he'd said, okay, everybody, imagine your life. Now imagine your life without Frisbee in it. A way he said it, which he always says things in such a, a very accessible, profound way. I don't know how he does it. He's a pretty amazing man. But now imagine your life without Frisbee. Like, whoa. And on that note, I'll talk to you next time, my friend. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, Shooting the Frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee. Oh, yeah!